0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to go get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide range of genres, and you can play them On just about any digital listening device, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, whatever you have in your possession. And here's the deal, everybody, right now. For listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get The Flame Alphabet by today's guest, Ben Marcus. Or how about The Complete Works of Edgar Allan Poe. Or The Tiger's Wife by Taya Obrecht. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few bucks. I would appreciate that. To download your free audio book, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone Just one person at just one time. Right. right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the Other People program. This is the broadcast. This is the fundamental nature of the exchange. My guest today is Ben Marcus. Very excited about it. Uh, Ben has written several books. He's written uh, books like The Age of Wire and String, Notable American Women, and now most recently The Flame Alphabet, which is uh, causing a stir and creating lots of excitement in the publishing world. Uh, So The Flame Alphabet, it's available now from Knopf. It's a novel. It's available from Knopf. It's not pronounced Knopf. It's Knopf. So Ben and I are going to be talking about a whole bunch of different things in just a moment. But uh, before I begin, I figured I would do my thing and I would talk for a little while and I would let you know uh, what's going on. And uh, I I guess what's going on right now, uh, this instant, is that my in-laws are in town. Uh, They arrived yesterday after driving across the country from Minnesota and they're going to be in Southern California for about a month. Uh, that is the plan. Uh, they don't know quite where they're going to be yet. Uh, there's been some talk of Palm Springs. There's been some talk of Sandy Nez. Uh, everything is up in the air. They are improvising and uh, floating around bohemian style. And so my mother-in-law just showed up at, a, at our apartment. And she has a shoebox with her. And inside of the shoebox uh, is a variety of, of stuff. It's a big box. Maybe it's not a shoebox. But she's got a variety of stuff, including an old doll that my wife had as a child. Kind of a very creepy-looking doll that plays music when you wind it up. Like the kind of music that might uh, appear on the soundtrack to a horror film. You know? It looks like the kind of doll that might attack you in the night. And then, otherwise, uh, inside of the box, there were several rubber Smurfs and some uh, porcelain Disney figurines. And I should mention here that this is kind of a ritual This is, a, this is an actual ritual My mother-in-law uh, likes to try to embarrass my wife By unearthing the artifacts of her childhood And then presenting them to me Like We've, we've been through this on, on multiple occasions uh, And I should mention uh, you know, that my mother-in-law keeps everything and, and, and I mean that sincerely There is nothing that she does not have uh, If it belonged to my wife in her youth Then it, it remains to this day in their house in Minnesota somewhere and uh in this in this manner my uh, mother-in-law reminds me uh, a bit of my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, uh like, who am I called pops. And uh he saved everything too. And I can remember visiting my grandparents, uh, you know, as a boy uh, down in South Louisiana, down on the Gulf uh in bayou country. And I remember wanting to ride a bike one day. I was bored, I wanted to ride a bike and uh and so pops went into his garage which was just stuffed to the gills with everything that he had ever had ever. You know, there were no cars parked in the garage, obviously it was, it was just a storage facility at this point. And it was a storage facility of mind boggling density and strange organization. There was a system to it, uh, but nobody understood that system except for my grandfather. So he actually, he went in there. I remember this and and he actually found, uh, I believe up in the attic region, my father's bicycle from when he was in elementary school in the 1950s and it was silver and it was rusty and it was antiquated but it still worked and i was able to ride it around the neighborhood and uh, i remember my dad was sort of amazed by this and horrified by it just the fact that my uh my grandfather was still in possession of his childhood bicycle uh you know 40 something years later almost 50 years later you know the thing hadn't been touched in decades uh, but he'd kept it just in case, you know, for an occasion such as this. So, uh, much the same is true with my wife and with her mother. And, uh, you know, just to give you an example, uh, I remember being up in Minnesota a couple of years back, uh, in Minneapolis, visiting my in-laws and, uh, my mother-in-law walks over to me as I'm sitting in the living room on the couch watching television and she hands me my wife's retainer from when she was in high school. Uh, and then she also hands me a plaster mold, <laughs> Of my wife's teeth that had been taken, I believe, at the orthodontist and was saved you know all these years by my mother in law in a box somewhere, so this is the level of curation that I'm talking about. It's a heightened level of saving and uh of sentimentality, I guess you know or hoarding some might call it or pack radishness uh, for lack of a better word uh, It's a bit unusual, I would say and and you know it, particularly in the context of me. Because this is like the opposite of me uh, Which I've talked about before Just the fact that I kind of have the opposite affliction You know uh, Rather than wanting to keep everything I want to throw everything away Including valuables I don't care what it is Nothing would make me happier Uh, I'm generally made anxious By the accumulation of stuff And I think I'm even made anxious by uh, Any kind of uh, sentimentality That I might feel about an object For some reason and, and, and it even goes so far that I have fantasies Of shaving my head Which I've talked about uh, You know, I don't even want the accumulation of hair on my head I want nothing I just want to live in my fantasy house Which will be made almost entirely of glass And it will have polished concrete floors And almost no furniture uh, It will be like a museum And uh, I want to be completely hairless That's what I want And I'll wear a unitard And I'll wear New Balance running shoes How does that sound? And I'll walk around my glass house is that an appealing image? Am I getting through to you? So, uh, anyway, that's, what's happening. I've been up since 4:30 in the morning for some unknown reason. And, uh, I think I'm a little punchy. My in-laws are in town. My daughter just inherited a vast collection of rubber Smurfs and porcelain Disney figurines, but I don't think we're going to be able to keep the doll. Uh, she was a little frightened of the doll. And frankly, I was too. So, uh, yeah, and just to illustrate even further this thing that I have, just to you know kind of hammer it home even further, this desire I have to rid myself of all stuff. Uh, I don't know if you're like this, but when I go grocery shopping, and I come home with the new groceries, uh, I always go through the refrigerator and all of our cabinets, and I like methodically dispose of any food that is anywhere near its expiration date. Uh, and my wife teases me about this, just just like my militants about this, but I'm convinced that I'm correct on this one and that my approach is rooted in deep wisdom. I do not want rotting food in my home. You know, like what's worse than old food. Uh, So like, you know, it, it it does present some conundrums and even some moral dilemmas. Like if the expiration date happens to be two days away, like let's say I have a new bag of spinach that I just bought. And then I come home and there's an old one sitting there in the fridge and it's got like two days left. It's gone. It's gone. And I realize that's wasteful, uh, but it's a calculation. You know, I'm figuring it's not going to get eaten in the next two days or someone's going to reach for the new stuff. So what am I supposed to do? You know, I don't want to waste, but like practically speaking, am I supposed to like walk out into the, into the city of Los Angeles and find somebody to give this bag of spinach to, you know, like, like what homeless, what homeless person really wants a bag of spinach? Honestly, like, here you go, dude. You got two days, you got 48 hours. Good luck with it. It just doesn't, you know, as much as it's like, it seems like the correct thing to do. It's really hard on a functional practical level. So, you know, I'm just opposed, I guess, to the accumulation of uh, perishable goods and potential rotting. And therefore, uh, I will dispose of it in cold-blooded fashion because there's nothing worse in my mind than when a house or an apartment smells that's how I feel. I'm conscious of that, and I remember it kind of distinctly from when I was a kid. Like maybe it's rooted in this, you know. Certain friends of mine, you went to their house, and their house smelled bad. It smelled like rotting food. It smelled like putrefaction. It smelled uh, unkempt. And then by contrast, other friends, you went to their houses, and it smelled like cinnamon or eucalyptus or something, or uh, or like blueberry muffins. And it was, it was pleasant and you wanted to be there. And I guess what I'm saying is that I want my house to smell like cinnamon and eucalyptus and uh, blueberry muffins. And I don't want my daughter bringing her friends over, uh, in the years to come and her friends thinking to themselves, you know, my God, <laughs> my God, this place smells terrible. These people stink. I don't want that. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I don't want to smell bad.
0: Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All
1: right, welcome. Thanks. And uh, we were just talking before we came on the air here about uh, David Markson, so I kind of want to continue that. Yeah. Uh, You were telling me that you actually interviewed him.
2: Yes, I tried. I am a huge fan of Markson, and this was a few years before he died. I had written about him a little bit in uh, an essay about lyric essays, I think, for The Believer. And he was always... I remember when I was in graduate school at Brown, they tried to bring him up to read, and I heard he was sort of really didn't like to do that. He didn't really like to come out of his house. And I actually had never seen him and never met him. And he wrote me a little note, I think, of thanks for something I I wrote about him. And so I pitched an interview and called him and we talked and uh, he he's very smart, very formidable. And, and I think like a lot of writers, didn't quite want to really explain much, which I think is, is fine. About his work or about
1: his life or both? You know what I'm saying? Was, I, I didn't,
2: yeah. I didn't really ask him anything about his life. You know, with his books, he all of a sudden started, I think the book he started doing this in was Reader's Block. He started writing in this list way. Essentially, the books are lists of people who were either anti-Semitic or who killed themselves. I, mean, I think that sort of literally summarizes what his books are about, They're just lists of these people. And it looked like a
1: totally radical departure to me. It was. But yeah, but like, this is the thing, because I'm a Marxist fan and I came to him a little bit late, you know, but man, when I read it, I was like, this is it. Like, this really moves me in ways. Like, why is it so moving? Why do people latch on so emotionally to this work that seems uh, on the surface so unemotional? And I
2: I remember there was a Times review, I think, of Reader's Block that said that, that there aren't any real characters in it and i was just thinking you fuckers man <laughs> <laughs> like really you're going to apply that standard it just wasn't even pretending it wasn't like he tried to have characters right it, that's just not what he did it's fine not to like it but to sort of say if only there were characters in right. this book but yeah it's mind blowing that stuff it is it, and it's hard to figure out why is it so poignant it's so sad because you could read that same information and probably not even care And I think it's the way he wrote those sentences. Just there's no syllable out of place. Like there's something so tight. His phrasing is beautiful.
1: Yeah. And like, yeah. Every line seems so carefully phrased. Right. And then like just the placement. Like, I mean, if you, if I look at it like kind of like collage, you know, collage can so easily be misperceived as accidental. Yeah. You know, like, Oh, it's just slapped together and it's haphazard, but some collage is, and some collage is, (laughs) but like you just get the sense with him, um, that there was quite a lot of care. And I think I read somewhere that he was doing uh, note cards and that he kept everything on individual note cards and would sequence them. Yeah. That seems to make sense, like, from a construction level, you know? And when you read him, you feel as though
2: he's this repository of really, really awful events and awful things people did or said. as, as a, He's like this weird encyclopedia, and he's spitting it back. And it, that book of his... Um, Wittgenstein's mistress, which was my introduction to him is like, maybe his second or third book, um, is this, you know, this guy is the last guy on earth and he's in a museum and he's sort of essentially trying to empty his memory of everything he has ever thought. And it's sort of elegiac in a way. And it's just, this, it's like data and it shouldn't, move you but somehow it really does like it's all the things you're not supposed to do when you write fiction you're not supposed to just give information
1: yeah well no and and like you know for me because I've like I really have thought about this and not not too long ago I wrote a thing for the millions about like the year in reading or whatever my year in reading and I I mentioned that I'd read like Markson in a huge wave wow and uh, one of the things that I kind of decided about it or that I landed upon was the fact that he he is kind of like uh, he's sort of preparing himself for death in these books by yeah. cataloging the deaths of others and he's also trying to make sense of art in relationship to his life and you know one of the things uh, just as an example that really strikes me about the books is how how carefully and often like with humor at least for me kind of dark humor uh, he catalogs how vicious artists are to one another. Oh yeah, like the awful things they say about each other, and like you know. Well, no one seems to be spared either. You know, you almost
2: think let's come up with a list of people and does not actually have some dirt on. Right, right.
1: Like, is there anybody left? Right. Yeah. No. I mean, it's like you know, it's yeah. You hear, you read like Ralph Waldo Emerson saying something nasty, and it's like <laughs> you know, it destroys me. You know, because he's like he lives like a, like a literary saint in my life. But it's but,
2: funny. Did it ever occur to you that? Maybe Markson made some of that up. I mean, you read it and you think all these things are totally true, right? But do you know they're true? That's a good point. You know, because I like to I like to falsely attribute stuff, particularly to Emerson. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say, you know, you hear some bad thing that Emerson said, I'm wondering like, hmm. Yeah. But it does seem with Markson that it's true. I feel like it all is true, but it's rough. It's rough. It's a rough accounting of history, really, is what it is. You know, in in some sense, these books are so different, but it pops into my head the Nicholson Baker book, Human Smoke. Did you read that?
1: I haven't yet. No, is that the one about World War II?
2: Yeah, but his approach to me is so mind-blowing. What he does is it's a lot of short entries that essentially encapsulate or summarize what was going on on a certain date. In essence, what would you have read in the newspaper if you were alive then? So... He seems to be putting you into, uh, he puts you back in time. He doesn't use any real overview or larger perspective, but he'll point out what the times said on a certain day and what Roosevelt was doing or what Churchill was doing and where he went or where Hitler was on a certain day and what somebody said.
1: Actual history? Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's not-
2: totally, no, it's impeccably researched, but it's just these little capsules and you move through it in, in, us uh, in in a timeline as it's happening and you see how you know now we have this big broad overview sorry about that that's um, all right of what happened but you wouldn't have while it was happening you would maybe be somebody reading the new york times or uh, and and baker closes everything down and gives you just a little bit of data and of course you can't help measure it against the real data you have when you see you know hitler having a meeting It's not just a meeting, right? It's it's, it's a grand evil plan. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't even need to be said. I love the way that was written. And I feel like, like Markson, it's almost just this beautiful attention to information. That's it. And, of course, it's totally stylized.
1: Markson is, like, this amazing stylist. He would have been great on Twitter. And, I mean, I don't mean to reduce him. (laughs) I don't mean to reduce him. I'm just saying, like, you know, you wonder... You, I just wonder what he would have done. I mean, if yeah. he did it, I doubt he would have ever. Does anyone do that kind of thing? Just sort of like. They pro- I, don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, the thing about it is that like it's cataloging, but it, there's something artful about it. And you have to be so unbelievably well read. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Just to find these things because, you know, it's not slapdash. There's like a thematic consistency to what he's putting together. And so you have to find certain things. Right. Not just anything that's interesting, you know? <laughs> like-
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, there's one of them. I forget which one, one of the Marxans that essentially just either people who were anti-Semitic or people who killed
1: themselves. And it just seems like he's going back and forth and it seems like he could write like 10 of these. Like he's just got so many examples. Yeah. Well, it's, it's sad that there are so many examples. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is very sad. But uh, I mean, yesterday, I mean, we're recording the day that we're recording this. I think yesterday, Mike Kelly and Don Cornelius both took their own lives right here in Los Angeles. I heard. So, I mean, it's just, oh, you know, it's a pitfall in, uh, in the arts to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about experimental. I mean, we're on the we're on the experimental fiction track. Sure, um, which obviously has some relation to your work and your approach to fiction and everything else. Like, um, do you, like, I, I don't know, like, where do you place yourself in that whole argument? Do you place yourself in that argument? Uh, do you feel like um, traditional publishers or traditional uh, media outlets don't do a good enough job of embracing the idea of experimentation in fiction? Do You know, do you feel like there's like a... Um, a stasis that we need to break out of? It's a bunch of big questions, a bunch of
2: interesting topics. I sometimes would like to simply not play <laughs> there, There's a part of me just that wants to say, look, I'm just writing what I like to write and that it's not some calculation. It's not some attempt to be other than I am or to, uh, really do anything other than write something that, actually holds my attention, doesn't put me to sleep or doesn't make me feel like a huge burning fraud, which I might just anyway. So partly it's difficult then to say I'm experimental after, because given the way I feel when I work it's, and I also think that the word has been used sometimes in a kind of derogatory way, you know, writing is interesting in that there's a kind of Fence around a very specific kind of writing that gets no other label other than, let's say, literature. And it would tend to be the sort of novel Jane Austen wrote, and it still gets written today. And it's a great model, I think. I love reading those books. But when I get confused when I start thinking of this big question in terms of something like painting or sculpture or installation art or video art, suddenly it's like, wait, what? Like, what is, how, like, what's what what's the analog in in some sense ambition or the the desire however foolish to try to do something no one else is doing however totally idiotic
1: right. it, it's kind of a given in
2: a lot of the other art forms
1: isn't it sort of or there it seems more permissive i mean i was i, I was going to ask that as a follow up question because it's like you look at the other art forms and then you look at literature and it feels like literature Uh, is more resistant to that kind of experimentation.
2: And maybe maybe the devil's advocate thing is, well, actually, language is a technology. It's a tool to make people feel things. We tell stories in order to satisfy all kinds of deep desires. And maybe everything that had to be figured out about how to do that best has been figured out for 150 years. So if you're going to do it now, you're sort of just an idiot. To pretend that that didn't happen and that it it isn't the best way to reach people and you shouldn't waste your time like fucking around and trying to make up a new way because no one cares. No one wants to read that and it, all the work's been done for you. So, you know what? Join the team, put on the uniform and just start to play. Uh, but it's also it, – it's sort of hard to – really feel that or I mean I think some people just feel it naturally they they're they have kinds of stories to tell so the way they're going to do it isn't something that they wring their hands over that much and I think for better or worse I was somebody when I was first writing that I just couldn't I didn't have a real native relationship to that approach of just like you know John got out of his chair and left the room and drove to work and at work there was no coffee and, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I just, I don't know, like to me, that wasn't what you were supposed to be doing. Um, and oddly, like suddenly if you're not doing that and then you're called experimental, it just feels all a little weird. On the other hand, I feel like I've been given, um, a lot of great opportunities. I feel like I've gotten lucky and I've had my stuff published and I've had some of it reviewed. And so, I mean, people do seem concerned to catalog it and to wonder about it. And with my new book, there seems to be some sense because it's more narrative that I am I forsaking the experimental by writing narrative. Right. I think, well, look, we use language to make other people feel things. There's a lot of ways to do that. There's this big toolkit. And I just there were some things I hadn't tried, and I like I, what? Well, like um, a propulsive story, a single narrator who has to tell the whole story. So the I can't wrest the story away from him and suddenly like go into another character's head. I have to restrict it. Um, time moves quickly. Th- that kind of thing.
1: I mean, I I earlier would have written. Are you are you saying you know just before you continue? Are you saying that maybe you were trying to embrace? Um, you know, fictional conventions that might typically be associated with genre as opposed to literary, or is it? Does that take not even too-
2: genre, but just maybe literary? Uh, It's just I. I wonder if, let's say, you know, narrative belongs to so, like, does it belong to realism? Does it belong to anybody? Or aren't there just different ways we could write and different strategies and. I guess I like to think that you don't have to decide. But on the other hand, I, I feel, you know, I, my first book, The Age of Wire and String, was, it had a bunch of sort of fictionalized encyclopedic entries. It didn't have a story per se, it didn't really have characters. It had some recurring kind of images and things like that. And it was considered. By some experimental. It was essentially ignored when it was published. It got some bad reviews and then it was ignored. Then I published my second book and I got a lot of like, oh, your first book was amazing, but now you're already not as experimental as we want you to be. (laughs) You can't please anybody. (laughs) Right, right. And, you know, so I think that there's, I noticed this kind of retrospective, like corrective stuff that goes on where people will suddenly appear out of nowhere to praise something you did 10 years ago and hope you just go back to that. And a lot of that has, You know, in a a way, like I felt like I got kicked out of the experimental club and I definitely was never even invited to the conventional club. I just feel like, well, I'm just floating or buried or whatever the metaphor is between those places. So I don't honestly don't care. I feel like as long as I'm trying to like literally write to my absolute limit and – make it good in the way I want to make it good. I just, I've, I i can not care about what it's called because I
1: don't know what to do with that information. Well, and it's not like, and you don't sit down thinking I'm going to write experimentally. I mean, that's, that's absurd, right? I, I, sh- I certainly don't, but you know, a little while
2: ago in an interview, I got asked if I considered myself experimental. And I said, I guess stupidly, it was like, does anybody actually call themselves experimental? And it turns out <laughs> a bunch of people, at least on this blog, did and they were pissed off right <laughs> I, you know i didn't realize that i also i sort of thought like if you say i'm an experimental writer it's it's essentially just like saying i am a super badass a writer. I'm, like, on a ble- I'm on a i'm on the cutting so edge badass <laughs> <laughs> like i just seemed slightly arrogant and so on the other hand it probably is like a useful description f- for some people it's just been used so differently and sometimes so maliciously or dismissively that it's just been gutted. It's just been like harpooned and gutted
1: and bled and burned. And but you do know, you away. do know when you are writing. And, and the thing is, it's like you know, you have to have a pretty encyclopedic understanding in, uh, of literature. But you do know when you are writing that you are trying something that you maybe haven't seen in a book before. You know what I am saying? That you personally haven't seen. You have had like maybe that experience, or I guess it might be hard to have because just about every little thing has been tried that's, in some I mean, form. That's
2: kind of a, an interesting way to put it. Uh, you know, sometimes though I think of myself as woefully under read. I feel like when I was younger I read just compulsively and other things come up and, and you have to go to work and you have to <laughs> you, you and- have kids and, yeah. and and you have to write. And sometimes I think, you know, I could I could write today, or I could
1: read a book. <laughs> unfortunately, I just feel like I'd better get my writing done. That's how I yeah. I mean, but I remember. I mean, I, thought, I want I want to say it was like Norman Mailer, but like in between books, he would go on these reading binges,
2: yeah, which I think is is super healthy. And I'm doing that a little bit now, and it's it's a little bit exciting to sometimes also just if I if I am reading a book, I have to teach. It's it's one of the worst things in the world because. You can't just enjoy it mutely. You're mm. you're worried about deconstructing, or just I, I imagine that I have to carry the ball in a discussion about it and like draw people out and find out what they think. And it's it you find yourself reading, looking for little chestnuts that you're going to polish and throw at people so they can talk about it. And I, I feel like some of my favorite books have been semi ruined by having to teach them. It's, yeah, it's kind of, it's you show up and people are like,
0: this sucked, <laughs> I
1: hate this book. I'm like, okay, <laughs> aside from how you felt, <laughs> yeah, what about what you thought? <laughs> right, right. It was like, what books are those? I mean, you can think of one in particular that you loved, but then was ruined by teaching it. <laughs> well, ruined is strong
2: because I, I do recover my enthusiasm, but, you know, students are interesting in that, you know, they, they probably, sh- they, you know, they should be honest about what doesn't reach them, what doesn't move them. I've. And so I've taught some, well, I've, I've taught Markson and had him really refused by people. I've taught Thomas Bernhardt or Diane Williams is a writer I love. And some people read her and they're just changed forever. And others feel like it's a foreign language that they haven't been taught. So there's always examples of this and, uh, I mean, so almost every book I really love, there are always a few haters.
1: Right? But you know, okay, okay. Because I had this conversation with a friend not too long ago, and uh, it was just like the last weekend, I want to say. And I was saying that some of it might just be a matter of taste. Like sometimes a yeah. writer just doesn't hit a person in the mm-hmm. right way, and that's it. But I think some of it sometimes is a function of where you are in your life. Have you ever had the experience where like, you read a book or you pick it up and you can't access it? Yeah. Almost to the point where it's indecipherable. And then you pick up that same book like five years later, and it and it, it makes perfect sense. Like, I think it's totally true. I think in,
2: in some sense, you've hit on something that's really interesting to me of just reading the exact right book at the exact right moment. And sometimes in teaching, I kind of think about that if I'm reading a student's writing, and I think, so what would just kind of just blow them away now? Right. And it's interesting to try to guess. Uh, and it's sad, too. I don't know about you, but it's harder to have that experience. You know, I read things and I can admire them and get engrossed in them, but it's harder to have that almost life changing experience where you just are destroyed and remade by a book as a function of age, you think? God, I don't know, you know, it's, I I mean, maybe I'm just not reading the right things or maybe because I'm trying to write, I feel too protective
1: and I don't let something in. I'm just not sure. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And like, not only that, but like, I'll pick up sometimes like, you know, books that I've loved in the past in that way. Yeah. I'll sort of use those like desk references or like, you know, touchstones, but I'll turn around, I'll spin around in my desk chair and I'll, I'll pick one of them up off the, off the shelf and I'll open it. And I'll read it and I'll be like, it's not the same anymore. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like something that yeah. I loved and it doesn't, doesn't diminish my love for it in a total sense, but like, yeah, I could not get through certain novels that when I was 15 or 22, you just or, ate up. Right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. a, you know, I think sometimes that's just the way that it goes, but um, or, or maybe we're just old curmudgeons who can't you know, find our youthful enthusiasm anymore. I don't know. We've damaged our attention spans with the internet. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, I worry about that too. You know, that's like one of the things that, uh, I don't know. I, it's, it's almost like it's, it's so tired to talk about it because everyone is concerned about it, but you can't escape it. You know, like I have been getting up and trying to read. Uh, a book first thing in the morning, every morning before I get sucked into the computer. That's so smart. You know, it's yeah. like the only way that I feel like I can get to it. And then, cause at night, you know, I get up really early. So at night, by the time I go to bed, if I start reading, I'm, yeah, I'm done. I know. It I mean, puts it's me to yeah, sleep it's a sleeping minutes. pill for me too. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard and it's especially hard like with kids uh, to know how to, you know, cause you don't want to make your kid like, uh, you know, Amish, not nothing against the Amish, but I mean like. To remove all technology to me doesn't feel like the answer, you know. I don't know if no. like no and TV and no internet it, and like I don't well. think it works. They'll find it.
0: Yeah, or they'll, or
1: they'll when they get they'll they create get... internet out of your toaster while you're at work.
2: <laughs> right. You know what I mean? They'll be like, I hear of this thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> or they'll turn eighteen and go completely, you know, in the you know, they go batshit. So like, I, I it's hard to know like what the <laughs> correct thing is because you don't want to damage, um, you know, irreparably your child's attention span by like giving them unlimited access to. I mean my daughter's 17 months old and she's already playing on an iPad it's freaky i know my 3 year old essentially doesn't just play on the iPad
2: but it's also essentially his cookie plate so it's like yeah. he's sitting there playing frogger or something right, like, right. and he's eating his cookie it's like i'm never touching that iPad again
1: yeah. it has become so disgusting yeah no and like the other thing that scared me was that she was like standing uh, by the coffee table we had like a big photo book out there, yeah. And she starts to swipe
0: the photo book. I've actually heard stories. of this. <laughs> like, That's <laughs> sort of depressing. That's so awesome, though. Yeah, you
1: know. So she gets frustrated because the thing doesn't like you know move and make noises and stuff. Oh my god, it's so it's just horrible. So we should all just hide in a hole? It's hard to think about, <laughs> but you know, that, I guess this brings up you know to try to kind of tie it back into uh, the task at hand, like yeah. you know the, the issue of children um you know uh, plays strongly into the flame alphabet it seems like it's a running theme it's something that's really at the heart of the book yeah like were you thinking uh, i guess you were thinking consciously about kids and your own children when you when you were working on the book or was that inaccurate
2: my son had just been born so he was zero and my daughter was four and a half and you know in some sense i l- i like to think when i sit down to write that i have some ability to literally access a self that has nothing to do with my real self. And I think that used to drive me. I used to I used to almost be, you know, speaking about being young and stupid if we even were while I am now. I I used to be disdainful of that approach where you would sort of try to write about your own experiences and turn them into story. I used to think that was I don't know. I had a lot of problems with it. Like it was a shortcut. Yeah, and, and I sort of I admired like the sort of Borges or Kafka or the approach that was about kind of you know it might feel recognizable, but it wasn't about one's quotidian experience. It was about something mythological and strange and compelling, but not really simply about like a kind of a memoiry sort of uh, you know gush. But. You know, more recently I've started to wonder about all the stuff I was really dismissive of. You know, I was talking about this with a painter friend. Can, like
1: Can you give me an example of like
2: well, a book like, or- like well, I was just wondering about not 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 stuff as in book, but like ideas or ways of writing. So like being dismissive of writing autobiographically or saying to myself I would never, because I teach writing, I would never be one of these guys who writes a story about a writing class. You know, like these things, like these rules, suddenly you find you have them, even though you don't think you're like a person who has rules against anything. Right. And I was talking, and these things have piled up, and one of them would be writing autobiographically or writing like a totally domestic short story, like a kind of what I would call like a teacup and flowers story. Right. Like nothing. really,
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> Right. Like yeah. stuff. I just think that's, I would never do that. Sure. But I, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a painter. He's in his late forties. He's done well. And in some sense he could probably continue to produce what he does and, and do fine. But he, he just, he's like, I don't know what, what I'm doing. anymore. I don't want to do this. And we were talking about how, we started to feel as though all these things we dismissed, we no longer were exactly sure why we'd ruled all that stuff out. And I was talking about it in terms of writing and he was talking about it in terms of painting, just like, you know, he's like, well, it was just unheard of to do, let's say, figurative painting when he was kind of coming up. He was just like, it was just ridiculous. So ridiculous that it just wasn't even discussed. It just wasn't done in certain, let's say, circles. And he said what I really had been feeling was that now he's just essentially systematically going to do all the things he thought he shouldn't do. And suddenly there's like a, oh, it's your second wind, (laughs) is to revisit this stuff you've dismissed with, for me anyway, now this is a long answer to your question, I realize that even if I do, let's say, take on the con- trappings of a conventional book, there's no fucking way it's going to be that c- conventional or it's not going to look like a Jane Austen book. It's still going to kind of reek of me so that even if there's no way you around know, it, all the fear of that, like, well, if you write like that, you're suddenly going to turn into this generic bland thing that could be anybody. But in fact, you realize that you can't, you're not a chameleon and those are just Tools that, in fact, they're tools to unlock your sensibility, whatever that might be. And that's what you're stuck with, <laughs> your sensibility. But maybe with a different tool, it could be interesting. And so, you know, the thing with kids is I think the the urgency and desperation and loyalty around them was, was a big thing. For some reason, I wanted to open this book, like literally from the very first sentence, with a kind of almost impossible sort of moral moment where it's something like, uh we left we left we left on a tuesday when esther was at school, so she wouldn't see us. I can't even quote the first sentence of my book it's so <laughs> <clears throat> I did write it I swear, <laughs> but I just i have i have a parent saying that he's abandoning his kid while she's not looking, and i just in other words, the total opposite of what I would do, but feeling as though I was putting myself in that role, so even though it wasn't autobiographical. I had to then become this narrator who had done that. And that was a way I think I was using my own you know desperate love for suddenly these new creatures in my life. I was using it against myself. I was I was sort of trying to attack it to see, I don't know, is that dramatic? The con- con- confrontation of fear. Yeah. Right? And you know and it, this involved a lot of me wondering what a what a good first page of a book was you know you 're talking about how you open a book and you know, sometimes it 's just not there and I think about that a lot, and I really think you know you have like half a second to get people 's attention if that right i'm being sort it's of shrinking. generous. It's shrinking. Yeah. and I think about that like well what is what 's a good first line in a novel obviously i don 't know because i can 't even remember mine but um and and what is it about it that's good and and you know and that's in some ways why markson is so compelling because i think there's something so commanding and severe and scary that comes off of just the way he writes sentences totally ineffable like i can't really say because there's there's just like no fat on the bone and like i feel like i could rewrite one of his sentences and it would just sort of suck I'd be like oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a piece of journalism so he does something with the cadence and so i think i spent a lot of time wondering about how to Kind of get the hooks in, I guess, right away, and, and this did involve children, but in a kind of perverted way, in a, like in a way poking at my own sense of desperation and sort of loyalty, and wondering what could ever make me willingly leave them.
1: Well, okay, so that's what I was going to say because, you know, when you talk about that first sentence and you talk about uh, trying to, you know, really arrest people's attention and how you have such, uh, you know, a small amount of time. It's a language issue on one hand, but I think sometimes writers might err in the direction of language. It's also like, what's happening? Yeah. Do you sure. know what I'm saying? Like, it feels like the the situation that you set up uh, is, you know, delicious. It's like, oh, shit. You know, like, what? it's very strange, but it's also like primal, you know, extremely primal.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's funny because I can look at it now and find nine different problems with the way things got set up and inconsistency. So I think it's something that to me is still an evolving notion of what that opening should be. And when I finished writing this book, I instantly started writing some short stories where I actually think I was stripping it away even more so that you literally just launched into something that was quite, let's say, fraught without any pausing, no backstory, no like describing a character's face you know or like no real setting I think I, I I was feeling even more interested in trying to see what would happen with something that was really propulsive and also really a little almost worrisome. With the with the novel or with the short stories? With or the both? short stories I think yeah. it was something about writing this novel I feel like I there was a lot that was new to me in terms of writing this kind of narrative and a lot I kind of learned it on the job or half learned it and I remember Literally, I think I turned the book in. There was a certain day in August, like about a year and a half ago from now. And I had a good kind of working schedule going.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I I was done.
2: And I was like, well, I kind of still want to work, you know. And I I did then. The novel would come back to me every few months and I would have to do little copy edits and things like that. And and I did more on that, but... I I just had this sort of left, these leftover fumes. And so I wrote some short stories. And in some sense, part of it was like, okay, these techniques still interest me, but I actually feel like I didn't quite nail them. And in a short story, also, it's just pretty, it's like a limited
1: sphere and you can focus way more carefully on the technique of it. Well, and just the pacing after doing a long, it's like after running a marathon, it's nice to run some sprints maybe, or? Definitely.
2: It, yeah, it really, really was. And, uh, it, I feel like oddly it, it opened up a different way for me to think about short stories having written this novel. How so? It just made me really think about plot and I really had never had, I mean, my short stories were a lot more about language and sort of strange situations, maybe linked or set of strange images and, uh. I just hadn't really written very many a couple stories with a sort of a ticking clock and things
1: happening. Yeah. No. And it's like, it's because I'm sort of the same way. Like I was, I was working earlier in my, uh, you know, career, like more elliptically, or I was less concerned with like the architecture in terms of it being like this whole solid thing. Like I was content to have it. Yeah. You know, impressionistic the, a little. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so like, no, but I find that like, uh, the book that I'm working on now, like is, is different in that sense. And I'm finding like great pleasure in trying to build the actual structure. Do you know what I'm saying? Like a yeah. plot it, like that part of it to me is, I guess I'm trying to challenge myself to do it because I didn't do it before. You know, Yeah, I
2: that's, the, I, I would say the exact same thing. You yeah. Know? And, and then, you know, people say, well, now you're being less experimental and, that's, that's when I, I feel like I tune out when I start to hear stuff like that, you know, back to what, how kind of we open because I, I just I, – I have no ability to get any meaning out of what, what that is really saying. You know, when you're working, you don't sort of – assign some kind of approach to yourself. That's no, just intuitive. You're sitting there and you're hoping this like awful crap is going to start to <laughs> like pop a little. Right. And, right. and, and, you know, after the fact you might say, yeah, it was this and not that. And But it's so, it's so hard otherwise to know. And, you know, I guess I just wish sometimes it wasn't
1: such a limited idea of what a novel might be. And, um, I think it's changing. I think okay. So here is a question: like to try to to try to take maybe a slightly new angle uh, on this whole like you know technology issue. Is that like, I mean, because publishing, the business of publishing, is clearly at some sort of pivot point. Do you think that like maybe um, you know the concept of what a novel is might might as a result of that in some way. Have room to grow and change in a way that's positive, or do you think that like it could potentially be ruined?
2: <laughs> I think it, it totally could, and I think honestly it could before this. And it, you know, there was a time. I guess it must have been in the nineties. There was something called hypertext. Were you sort of around for any of this? It was yeah. essentially using the kind of mode of a website, but to write fiction. So you could have links within a page. This was a very new thing to link out of your text and have a forking text and no particular way you might read it. And uh, I was, uh, I had finished up uh, my studies at Brown and my advisor, Robert Coover, got pretty involved in this and some people got excited about it. And uh, there was a lot of manifestoing, which in a way I think is a bad side. I think if you have a new art <laughs> movement, like do the work first and maybe the manifesto should come later. So it's like people were really into the idea that this was going to unlock everything. You know, to me, though, the language, regardless of what technology you use to like shoot it into somebody's body, is, is a, still a very untapped technology. The, the whole idea of a sentence, it's still there's someone in the seventh grade right now. Who's just going to write sentences in some way that's just going to shatter us. And I think I like to still believe the technology is interesting to some degree. We can't not pay attention to it. We're we're in this business and we're curious about it. And But, I mean, there's no possible way it's going to limit the artistic impulse to move people with language. I just can't see how... There are going to be people who are going to grow up with it as the norm, whatever the new, whatever we settle on, if we even do settle on, on, on a method digitally, like whatever reader dominates or however it works. The fact is, language is still going to be something that we can use to make each other feel things. And I mean, in the end, that's what writers are doing. So I I doubt it's going to hurt. It might, you know, the commercial side of it is, is obviously going to change and all the surface and the trappings will change, but will this affect the fact that we use sentences at all? You know, if that starts to change, right? Like if let's say the Twitter model of fragments Becomes the going mode, and, and the whole idea of a sentence is this sort of antiquated thing. Like, I remember when I was growing up, we wrote sentences, <laughs> paragraphs. <laughs> then
1: I'll come back, we'll talk about it. Yeah, we'll, right? We'll what? put a fucking tombstone <laughs> in this thing. We'll be like, yeah, it's done. It's over. <laughs> That's it. You know, and who knows? It's like, you know, who knows? Like, I just, uh, I don't I kind of agree with you. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think the like just the the design is too foolproof and it's too like fundamental to who we are. Yeah. But at the same time like I I I mean one of the bigger questions is like the marketing of all
2: this stuff, right? Like I I sort of I my book's only been out for 2 weeks and I've been lucky in some sense in that my publisher has been supportive of it and has tried to sort of market it a lot. But like one of the other things that's happened is I've just gotten my ass handed to me with a lot of pretty bad reviews and part of me you know this is defensive Thinks, well it got over marketed I mean maybe I had my audience and I shouldn't I shouldn't I shouldn't even be saying any of this but like I shouldn't have a big publisher who tries to make a lot of people read me like maybe the people reading me are you know are enough and that a lot of other people are just going to hate this and so don't over market something that they won't like I mean it's, it's sort of a weird thing to say because most writers might just think my publisher didn't do enough for my book. Most, that's, that's, all, that's most
0: yeah, writers. Yeah, the that's overwhelming what you, that's majority what think. And so here I am
2: saying they, they, they pushed me too
0: hard. <laughs> so
2: yeah. it's a totally demented. I agree. It's like a demented thing to say. And I'm, and I, I also want to say I'm I, I, I love them there, and I'm grateful, and I'm grateful for their enthusiasm. But sometimes with some of the. Bad reviews. I think, yeah, of, you've, I, uh, of course you hated this, but, like, why did you even review it? Like, it's so... I, like, I hate the premise. I hate this man. I hate his life. I hate his Do you family. find that
1: they're mean? Do you find that mean, like... The,
2: yeah, I experience them as mean, but anyone does. You know, yeah. and I, I sort of have try, I try not to really read them, but, I'm, you know, I People still... tell you. Friends. <laughs> it was like, people are like, congratulations on that review. That ripped you a new one. <laughs> like, Thank you. <laughs> like,
1: you got reviewed in
2: the Times, but they
1: ripped you, but, you know, it's, like, still exciting. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the... Ama-
2: yeah, it's amazing to hear people's... Kind of, like, equivocations about it. It's
1: so great. No one even reads it. It's great. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, and you bring up an interesting point, you know, with regard to to, um, your numbers or, like, your audience, you know, however you want to quantify it. But it's like I've had this conversation before uh, about, like, you know, when you look at your own work, you're holding your own book in your hand, and you think about the world, and you wonder, like, who are the people to whom this book would really register? Yeah. And how many of them are there? Like, that to me is is an endlessly fascinating thing to ponder like cuz like yeah and it's
2: easy to think you know if only more people knew about my work that they would like it and i, I honestly i've started to think mm, yeah maybe not like right, right? like maybe the people know.
1: (laughs) Maybe it's finite. You know, it's finite. It's totally finite. Yeah.
2: But you hear writers talk about this, like, who suddenly have an audience of millions. And it's an interesting thing to listen to, because then they say, well, now I feel responsible. Not all of them, and I'm totally generalizing, but something happens, and suddenly they're being read by many, many, many more people. and. it it sort of gets in their head a little about what kind of
1: book they should write next. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I feel that way just about like, I mean, not to compare myself to someone who's sold millions of books, but like with this podcast, as modest as as it is, I look at the analytics and I start to go, oh shit! Like people are listening, and it makes me Does tense. Does it up. change how you? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I try to, I try not to let it. And one of the things about like doing it out of my apartment is that it keeps things modest. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to, it's hard to get too big of a sense of yourself when you're just kind of sitting here with this microphone in your own little space. But right. you know, you still, you still, I still do feel a sense of responsibility, and I feel a sense of responsibility as a writer. Whatever, yeah. however modest my readership is, like, you know, you you want to make sure that whoever you're reaching. Uh, is pleased, right? Yeah,
2: and you know, I'll admit, while I was working on this book, it didn't. You know, there were days when I thought that there would just, you know, the world would stop and there would be a big, you know, festival of biscuits over this book. You know <laughs> what I mean? And yeah.
1: like,
2: I think like, I think like that, there'd be a new cookie would get invented because of this book. And it's just that little delusion that you know, and you even see it at the, you recognize it at the time, but it gets you through the day and it keeps you working. But it's then sobering to discover. <laughs> There will be no biscuit. There will be no cookie. <laughs>
1: not for you. But I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a book that has been written, that has been seen through to completion, where the author did not have that moment at least once.
2: Yeah. I don't I'm think sure it's possible. Right. Oh, I, I think that's totally right. And when I talk to writers, you know, essentially, you know, my feeling right now, too, is, you know, the book's only been out two weeks. It's like, I want this, sort of, this part to end. I want to start to forget so that I can kind of go back in my hole and try to work again. Because in the end, you know, even let's say a good review, it doesn't quite, nothing's quite satisfying. Like there's nothing really that's going to compare to the feeling of working on whatever you were working on. That is much more interesting and in a way gratifying. And I guess it's nice to find that you've reached people and it's enjoyable, but it's somehow, it feels really ephemeral.
1: Yeah, no, and it's like weird because when you're working, it's like it's this weird tension for me between like when I'm working, I want to get this book done. Like right now, like I don't want to miss a day. I want to yeah. get the words. I'm just like I'm fixated on it. Yeah, and it's a good that's thing, great thing. It's a great thing. It's a great, it's a a great you know. Moment like, I, to be in. I'm eager to work every day. That's I think that's incredible. But it, then to me, there's nothing better than that, right? But then the thing is, is that like I'm like I want it out of me. I want to. I want it to be externalized. Yeah, and then what's funny is that it is, and then eventually. Um, You get to the point that you're at and then you sort of look back, I think, kind of like wistfully, and you're like, that was the good stuff, the actual writing of it. Even though when you were writing it, you wanted it. Yeah, I know. Do you know do you what do. it is? I do, yeah. It's a yeah, strange thing. I, I, have, I have no advice about it. Right? <laughs> <just like>, well. <laughs> just the way it goes. <laughs> yeah. So how do you work? Like in terms of, uh, I'd be, just be interested in terms of your patterns. Like I'm, uh, you know, all writers are different, but like, are you an everyday person? Are you extremely disciplined? Do you work three days a week in big bursts? Like, well,
2: when, I, when I'm working on something, I have to really work. Every day. I like to have long chunks of time. Uh, you know, what I have found sort of sadly in the last few years is that if I go away like, for a few weeks to a place like McDowell, like a writing colony where you get a little hut in the woods, I work really well. There's no distractions. Your meals are <laughs> prepared for you. You walk to your studio. You know, that's all you have to do. So I, and, you know, and I turn off my internet. But
1: at home. You do know, they have internet at the McDowell colony? You,
2: they have wireless at the library, but okay. you have to like, you know, walk there. And I, I actually, so yeah, you don't have it in your studio. And even actually my cell phone doesn't really get coverage at my studio. So I can't even kind of like iPhone it. How do you get in there? What
1: happens? Like, have you only been once or is this some place you return to?
2: I, I've been there a few times. You apply. And oh, you it's, it's writers and composers, visual artists, uh, lots of different kinds of artists and they have seasons and you apply and there are a lot of places like it. There's a place called Yado. and there's yeah. places all over the country, all over the world. And I like uh, the name Yato for some
1: reason. It sounds vaguely like, you know, like uh, star Wars or something.
2: It was a, it was a nonsense word made up by the, a little girl whose dad started Yato. He was like, what should we call it? And she, and she I don't know. Like just four year old girls like Yato. And he's like, okay, done. Yeah, that's actually supposed to rhyme with shadow, so you're supposed to say yaddo, but people are so uncomfortable saying that it sounds even worse than yaddo. <laughs> yaddo? Right, no, I'm just gonna say yaddo. <laughs> right. yeah, let's bestow some dignity on it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh but I, I at home I, I I kinda have to get out of the house. I try to go to the library for a couple hours. I I put on little like airport, you know, sound blockers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love those. Turn off my internet and you know, hope for the best. Uh, so you write at the library? I do at the Columbia library. I live in New York and, uh, I, I go across the street, Butler library, kind of find a little, little private nook or a little kind of cubicle yeah. table. Uh, so yeah, I, I really can't do much at home. It's tough with My morning. son's at home with his babysitter and you know, they go out a little bit, but then suddenly
1: there's a play date and there's like three four year olds oh, just going nuts. That's coming. I'm I'm already starting to like think about like where am I gonna go. Don't, yeah, <laughs> don't don't do play dates. It's just yeah, <laughs> terrible. <yeah>. Oh god.
2: <laughs> no, I mean it's great. It's great for, for them. For them, right? <laughs> Uh, if you care about their needs right. at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You might be on the fence about that. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, okay. so there's not much I don't know, mystery or interesting stuff to say about how I work. Just like anyone else.
1: And then what about, you know, uh I always like to ask writers about their their past or their childhood. Like like an inter- like an obvious place that I always like to start is like did you always know you were going to wind up in this racket or was it something you came to later? I found that I was actually announcing it at a early age that I was going to be a
2: writer, which I had no you know I had no idea really what it was, but even yeah was, how well. early are we talking? <clears throat> well, I have this memory, I think I mentioned this once in an interview, so sorry for the overlap of I was hanging out with my friend Eric, when I was like eleven, and uh we got into a little bit of streaking, you know, mostly I think we just like took our. Shirts off and went running, you know, through the night in our suburb outside of Chicago. And somehow we ended up talking about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And and I said, I, I just I surprised myself and said I wanted to be a writer. This was this is my origin tale. Yeah. And uh, but I went to and I you know I wrote the I wrote the bad kind of hard on sleeve love poem sort of stuff in high school, but really nothing much. And then in college I was a philosophy major, but I started to take some writing classes at Brown. I went to NYU undergrad. I went to Brown for. I went and got an MFA in okay. creative writing at Brown. So,
1: and you, by, you were raised in Chicago.
2: Well, uh, up until eighth grade, and then we moved to Austin, and I essentially spent my high school years in Austin, Texas, oh, wow. and uh, then went to college at NYU, grad school at Brown, and then. Moved back to the city, waited tables for a few years while writing my first book, *The Age of Wire and String*, uh-huh. and then started to take teaching jobs. Actually, what had a job at UT Austin, then a job at Old Dominion University in Virginia, then I had a job at Brown for a few years, and then finally I left Brown to go to Columbia, where I've been for like eleven years.
1: Oh wow! Yeah, okay. So you're there? Are you tenured and everything? Yeah. Okay, so you're there. You're, I am. Yeah, you're locked in. I mean, do you foresee yourself like finishing your career there? As an instructor or a professor, I should say.
2: It is. It's hard to imagine leaving. On the other hand, you know, we have two kids and we're in the city, and the city is. We love it, but it's also it's super expensive. And you know, we we talk about moving, but you know, then you just sort of look at your overhead, and you're like, you, you can't just move somewhere without a job. And so, right. Uh, it would be it would be interesting to move at some point, but it's nice having job security, you know, absolutely. And it's a great school. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's not a bad it, place
1: to be. No, it's not at all. It's, I, I like it. And, uh, yeah. So, okay. So take me back a little bit. Cause now, now I'm fascinated. You moved around, you like, you announced early that you were going to be a writer. Like what kind of kid were you, you know, like, were you fairly, were you fairly normal or, or do you feel like, boy, I was really an intense, weird kid or I think, you know, I had I had some inner
2: life, but I was also pretty always interested in, you know, having a lot of friends. And I was really athletic. Like we were, my brother and I, <coughs> who are a year apart, we were raised and we pretty much played the seasonal sports, you know. It was just like baseball, football, basketball, I ran track. And then in Austin in high school, sports were even more important. I played football. You, what position did you play? Uh, well, I was really pretty bad at that point. See, one of the interesting things is we... Up until eighth grade, we were in Chicago, outside of Chicago in Evanston, and football with pads, like tackle football, didn't start there until high school. Oh, Okay. And when we got, so we moved to Texas for for me, it was ninth grade, and I was so excited to like finally play with pads because we essentially were just playing like sandlot tackle football, which can be pretty rough. Yeah, it can be <laughs> pretty rough. And, you know, you're getting to be the size and strength where it really you can actually start getting hurt. Right. And actually, I remember once. <clears throat> There was some kind of like peewee league you could join but it wasn't it was like far away or something and we were playing our padless football in this playground and some other kids wanted to play so we got this big game going and some of them were already playing tackle and I remember getting tackled by one of them <laughs> who actually like had started to learn you know we had just we played there was nothing to learn you just played football right and he just creamed me and it hurt yeah and uh <clears throat> We get to Texas and there was also – sorry, this is a long story. There was this other thing in play where there was this idea when I was growing up that you didn't lift weights too young because it would stunt your growth.
1: Isn't that true? I thought that was true. Is it true? All right. So anyway.
2: so there was this idea that you could sort of start in ninth grade the same time you started with pads. So we, we moved to Austin, Texas where they had been lifting weights since third grade
0: high school football, they'd religion. been playing
2: tackle football since third grade. Yeah. And so we were, my brother and I were fair enough athletes in in our world. We were, you know, we would, we would not be picked last. Like we were, we right. were good and we were sort of, you know, we were tough and we were fast enough and all of that, but we were just like a, you know, a whole different species. Yeah. There were these guys, you know, other ninth graders in the locker room with just like huge hairy chests and just like... <laughs> they, like they, were did, they were on steroids. They were just... They were just monsters. So that's the backstory. So I just... I never... I never caught up. I mean, I was... I was just a joke on the high school football team, but
1: do you think that that maybe like threw you into books (laughs) and writing more? I mean, like sometimes that kind of you know what it threw me into water skiing. I
2: got really into water skiing and I competed, and I actually did pretty well. You're kidding me? No, in high school. You like know. jumping stuff and all that kind of stuff. Or I, like- I competed in slalom, so in the slalom course around the buoys, yeah. and did a lot of barefooting. I did some jumping, so I'd go to these uh, water ski camps in like the middle of nowhere, Texas. These man made lakes, which ha- were totally calm, you know, and you would just ski, and the wake would be all like brown from the mud in the lake. And, oh wow! And you would learn jumping and barefooting and all this stuff, and. So, yeah, I was, I was actually so serious about water skiing that I wanted to go to college for it. My mom was just so <laughs> horrified. See, this is just <laughs> stuff I want to know. Yeah. I would have never guessed that. I should have started with this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I may have to return to this because you know, I don't know about the writing thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you're doing okay. Uh, I mean, come on. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I don't think I could now, you know, at this age, have a professional water ski career. Yeah. I think you might've missed your window. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah. There's this school in Florida called Rollins College. I actually really want to go there and it's some crazy party school where they're really good at water skiing.
1: What do you do with it though? I mean, is there are there are there actual <laughs> professional competitions where you can make money? What do you do with a philosophy degree? I know, exactly. <laughs> to me, it's the same.
2: <laughs> Point taken. So, no, it's obviously a terrible idea. Terri- I, mean, it's a ter- I think even if you're the best in the world, you're making like five dollars an hour. Yeah. No. Can't no offense be- to anyone out there professional water skier. It's not. It's not. A, and it's not an Olympic sport, is it? I don't know. It's funny because I realized a few years ago, like once YouTube got really rampant, that I was totally out of touch with what people were even doing because water sports do sort of change. There's different like techniques, and uh, it was kind of cool to catch up and see like what people had figured out. And there's this, you know, like barefooting is you know you, you know you have no skis and and barefoot jumping. Go, you go over a very shallow ramp because probably you just would just crush your face into this thing and die. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, when I was water skiing, you would just kind of go straight over and just like free. I never did this. But it was considered really hard and really scary. And the guys would just kind of get rigid in the hold and they'd jump, I don't know, like 20 feet, 30 feet, you know, because you're going fast. But their bodies just stayed in the position they were in skiing. And one thing I noticed they figured out, and I don't know who figured this out, but it's like a huge, like, Da Vinci level breakthrough Barefoot <laughs> jumping Someone figured out And you go over the jump And you throw yourself into like a flying position And just flop into the air Like Superman flight position Still holding the rope Holding the rope Feet behind you Like literally like Superman flying through the air And you're just arched And you just get way more distance In the last minute You know you're horizontal over the water You bring your feet under you And you land And suddenly they were jumping three times further so I don't somebody know. had to be the guinea somebody pig. Somebody did that. I don't know if he got like a MacArthur for that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that would be somebody awesome.
1: one day is like, hey, what if... <laughs> I, think, I think that's totally deserving of MacArthur. I do too. They need to, they need to be a little bit more I liberal. I wonder if any
2: water skiers have gotten one. <laughs> they should have a year where they just give, give that out to like really
1: obscure athletes. I think so too. <laughs> um, so uh, b- before I let you go, I'm curious to know uh, about how you perceive your future as a writer. And and by that, I mean like, yeah. are you a person who plots uh, your course going forward or are you just sort of like focused on like tomorrow <laughs> or, well, or today? You, you know? know, what's funny is having a book out,
2: getting a sort of higher level of focus, positive and negative, talking a lot about writing a lot all day, every day on a book tour in a weird way. It makes me just, first of all, long for writing itself free of all that and i it, it it it's it is giving me a kind of a longer view I mean, if you see yourself getting criticized over and over for something i'm you know i have to admit i'm not someone who doesn't care about it I, i'm not someone who's like fuck they're fucking morons right right i'm like
1: oh <laughs> i tend to believe them i'm all, like I, i'm yeah. very susceptible i'll be like maybe they're it's, right uh, yeah
2: you know i don't i i just i don't traffic in that level of confidence where i'm i feel so sure of what i'm doing and so but on the other hand i don't think it really works to just sort of address somebody, some random person's concerns. I don't, actually don't think that works at all. Well, and it also doesn't stop you from <coughs> coming to work. The question is, like, if people are all having these problems, and you know, how does that end up resonating over the long term? Is it really going to change what you do? And, you know, I, I'm finishing a collection of stories, which I'm kind of excited about. And I have a. Does it uh, have
1: a publisher already or.
2: Yeah, it does. It's my same publisher. It'll be with Knopf and it'll come out sometime in two thousand and thirteen, like in the summer maybe. We don't, there's no date, but it's it's essentially done, but I realize I want since now is such a busy time, I want to take some months into the summer to just cut some stories, revise some stories, maybe write a new one, two, three stories and see if I can make it better. And I'm kind of excited about that. And I also feel like doing that might help me refine my idea for another novel and I think I just feel this – I feel a real urge to continue and to try something different and to see what I can do in in some sense so I can return to that space of feeling a little excited about something again and not feeling like I'm judging myself. Others are judging me. It's just impossible to stay happy when that's going on. It's hard to work, period. You can't – you don't get much out of it. And so if you're working and no one can see it for a while, there's just a time when you can – Maybe take what you've learned or thought about, and and possibly process it a little, or ignore it. Who knows? So I feel excited to work. I really, and I had this vague idea for a novel, and I'd written some pages, and I was sort of testing out what I'd like it to
1: be, but it's super seedling. I was gonna okay, so I was gonna ask you. It's not it's not one hundred percent clear, and and do you have like. Do you feel like most of your uh, books have, be- have begun in a similar way or does it change like sometimes it's like a character sometimes it's the title like do you have a do you start with a question like is it the same for you I, I think in some sense I have
2: to start with a sentence or some language that feels like it can it can grow and be built on but but at the same time I'm I mean I I think I've been thinking a little more situationally a little more story-y than in the past you know um Notable American Women was a very episodic book with sort of discrete chapters about different things about how to feel less, and it it was sort of more faux nonfictional book, like it it was a book of processes and concepts and fake ideas, and so it was in some sense a lot harder to write because I I couldn't just pick up every day and kind of continue. I would finish a little nugget of it and then. Have to write another one and start this whole new process again. I felt like I kept starting and finishing little
1: books, right? And, and they so, had to be completely different on the level at the level of voice and
2: and and and, and self contained. And, and then oddly, I don't really know why I felt like I was just publishing them as I went. And there was, you know, but I just didn't know any better. That was just what I wanted to do, I guess. And so I don't really know. If the next one will start the same way, you know, I always have a sort of fantasy of working in some different way that's more efficient or faster or better, but
1: you know, then you're suddenly just working the same way you always did. I, have, I think <laughs> I, have, I have that fantasy too, where like, I'm going to have a book that just shoots out of me yeah. in like three weeks or something crazy. And I mean,
2: the thing i like,
1: you know, n- no one ever, ever, that never works. I mean, people might do that, but there's Can you think of any examples? of? Uh, I mean, it's like the Kerouac thing, but that's a myth. I mean, he he had – I mean, On the Road theoretically was written quickly, but I mean, I I think he was working on that book for a long, long time. Yeah. And I think sometimes you're doing preparation. I mean, it's fun. I think it's fun to draft quickly, and I did draft this one. How long did
2: it take you? Well, I probably finished a first draft in about a year. Which is really fast for me.
1: Yeah, but th- I think that's, I mean, that's that's fast. But I'm just saying, like, I think that's also within the range yeah. of normal. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I
2: mean, if you think about it, like, some people say write a thousand words a day. Well, then you'd have a novel in 80 days. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, and there is this thing, this, like, National Novel Writing Month. Thing. Right. NaNoWriMo. And I have a really embarrassing story. They asked, they asked me to write uh, – I guess one of the things they do is they, they send out pep talks if you sign up to be one of these people. Uh-huh. And I'm not knocking this. So I just – I guess I agreed. So while people are doing this month of intensive work, they email pep talks <laughs> from <laughs> – people like me, I guess. And my my pep talk was rejected. Was it? (laughs) Yeah. Which I'm just so I'm actually really proud of it. Well in essence what I said is look, word count is such a ridiculous criteria. Like maybe it's helpful, but do you really believe you can like do do a lot of work and and, but then you're gonna throw a lot of this away. And I was just trying to essentially my pep talk was, you know, get very stern Strict outside readers. An outside reader is not a family member or a friend. They're afraid, or they're you literally un- incapable of saying critical things. So, somebody who you're not close to, who's just going to really give you a serious read and build in time for revision. And it was just a bun- I mean, it it was kind of nuts and bolts. But but I I take a big knock against this idea that if you just have. You know, this page count thing, word count, then you're fine. And they said, you know, that's a really important criteria of ours. You kind of can't criticize it. (laughs) And I was like, okay, (laughs) let's just go our separate ways. Right, right, right. You know, and and I actually think it's a neat way, probably, to get a draft out for a book. So I I, I had no problem with it, but I found in my pep talk that I was really not able to
1: condone. (laughs) (laughs) And there's just like, you know, you're trying to keep it real. I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it. I mean, there's, you're right. You're going to write all these words. And especially if you're writing them all in a month, it's likely that like 80% of them are going to be excised, right? <laughs> or maybe, you know, I'm yeah. throwing a number out there, but. It, it would seem that way. It's hard to, yeah, it's
2: hard not to think that stuff's going to all survive. But who knows?
1: Yeah. Who well, knows? And, and, you know, you if, know. You ever, if you ever wind up writing a book in a month, uh, you have to let me know. Like anybody okay. out there, please let me know if this ever happens for you. I want to talk to you. <laughs> You're going to get like 90 emails. Yeah,
0: tonight. 90. <laughs>
1: uh, ben, it's been great talking with great you. Great talking man. to you too. This uh, was fun. Best of luck with the rest of the tour and with uh, you know the next book and all, all the rest. But this has been great. Thanks. Okay, folks. There you have it. That's it. That's Ben Marcus. What a terrific guest and what a terrific writer. Go get his new novel. It's called The Flame Alphabet. It's out there now. It's available from Knopf in hardcover. And uh, it's the rare literary page turner. It reads with the propulsive energy of a thriller, but it carries the depth charge of ancient poetry. How do you like that? How's that for a plug? So Ben can be found on the web at benmarcus.com. He also has, I believe, a Facebook presence. This show has a website. Uh, It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Dot .com. You can tell me what you think, you can tell me a story, whatever you like. Don't forget to check out the nervousbreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. You can follow it on the Twitter at TNBtweets. And here quickly is my pitch. If you enjoy the show, if you're a regular listener, uh, I kindly ask that you please consider joining the Nervous Breakdown book club as a show of support for only 9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every month. That's less than the cost of a book, and you get a book delivered to your house. The uh, The titles are hand-selected by both myself and my buddy Jonathan Evison, and uh, better yet, I interview the book club authors on this program, so if you join, you can read the book and then you can hear me in conversation with the person who wrote the book. Uh, if you have the dough and you'd like to help the cause, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar, and you can pay by credit card or you can pay uh, via PayPal, whatever you like, and if you do this... Uh, I will love you for eternity. So before I go, uh, I would like to revise a little bit, uh, you know, or just like, you know, uh, add some clarification to the whole rotting food argument that I was making at the top of the show. Uh, I don't want you to think that I'm throwing away like pounds and pounds of good food every week, nor do I want you to think that I'm, uh, you know, completely obsessive compulsive about it. You know, it's just not the case. Uh, You know, I I feel like I'm moderate. I'm fairly moderate. I'm just trying to hold down the fort and uh, I'm just trying to run a good household. That's all. And, and, you know, it's nice when things smell nice. That's all I'm saying. But what's interesting, you know, as kind of a side note, is that I don't like it when people smell too nice. You know, I want you to know that I'm not advocating for perfume or cologne. Uh, With people, I, you know, I just, I don't want to smell them at all. That's kind of my preference. Uh, and if I do smell them, I just want them to smell like soap. That's it. But with a house, it's a bit different with a house. I guess I want, uh, I want flavors or I want scents. I want, uh, I want some kind of production value. And, uh, you know, if you ask anybody who's been a guest on the show, who's taped here in the studio or in the home studio here, uh, I do always try to have a scented candle burning, uh, during the taping. It's, it's kind of a guarantee uh, in fact, I, I need to go get some new ones. In fact, I wonder if I, I lit one for Ben. I don't know if I did. Uh, ben, if I didn't, I'm really sorry. Uh, I just need to go to the candle store. And what's interesting about the candle store, <clears throat> the candle store, is that you can pay these days like 30 bucks for a candle. You know, like candles are expensive. Scented candles, a, a good one. You know, that seems like a racket to me. It seems uh, seems like it. It seems to me like they should be free. That's what I think. You know, it's just wax. I think they should be subsidized by the government. That's my position. If I'm president, scented candles will be free, and every home in America will smell like eucalyptus and sandalwood. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, okay, clearly I'm overtired, and uh, I could probably use some food, some fresh, new food. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, many thanks again to Mr. Ben Marcus and my thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. I will be back again soon with another conversation with another author just for you. In the meantime, please go clean out your refrigerator. Just do it. Just, ma- just do it to make me happy. Just get rid of all that old food and light a candle and make the world a better place.